Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features Anna Turley, the former MP for Redcar. Anna lost her seat at the 2019 election. She'd been an MP for four years, but oh my word, a lot of stuff happened in that time. She was a former special advisor as well to David Blunkett and Hilary Armstrong. And she ended up having a protracted legal battle with Unite the Union and a website called Squawk Box, which we talk about a little bit. But this is more a conversation about what the Labour Party should be, what the reality of uh, being an MP was like in an area that had lost its industrial base, and the reality of when you're dealing with opponents, not just inside and outside your party, but on the far left and on the far right, and when they are existing in the same space, that is something quite profound. So we talk about some very serious things and some lighter stuff about the future of the Labour Party, and of course... The Labour Party conference, which is getting underway. I've put a link, by the way, to Keir Starmer's pamphlet, The Road Ahead. You may have heard about it. Um, it's Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, laying out his um, personal philosophy, I guess. I haven't read it in full yet, but I, as, as you know, someone who likes to read reports and manifestos and documents. And uh, I welcome more politicians doing this sort of thing, because there are plenty of avenues for the quick soundbite, the little video that goes on Twitter, a bit more detail, a bit more background is often welcome. So um, even though some people seem to react to it quite violently, uh, thinking that even the fact that he'd written a thing was, was ludicrous because it was too long, apparently. Well, um, depending on what you're doing this weekend, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, sit in your favourite chair, have a cup of tea, a dairy milk, and, and read Keir Starmer's The Pathhead. I've put the link to it, as I often do with documents, because I think it's quite handy to read. I wish more politicians would do that. Anyway, we talk about that a little bit, so I thought I'd include it here, especially as this is just ahead of the Labour Party conference. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. The slight pause there was because I almost forgot the email address. Uh, Connor's been in touch. It says, Matt, I'm not sure I can call this nerdy, but last summer when I was volunteering with a sea turtle protection charity in Crete, I spent many a morning patrolling beaches while listening to your podcast. Thank you so much, Connor. I was also desperate to try and find a way to make reference to the podcast throughout university, given the wide range of topics and people covered. Although I didn't reference it directly, I was able to use it listening in to fill in hours on an extracurricular module where I had to spend 20 hours doing something outside of the course relating to politics. Well, it sounds, Connor, like I basically did that module for you. So I don't know if you get honorary um, degrees for one module, but I expect mine in the post, Connor. Uh, don't forget, you can email the show. Part political. Why, have I could Why has this happened to me today? Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Um, and often people get in touch with their stories of uh, mundane or unusual places they've seen politicians. 
A perfectly normal place to see a politician, of course, is at the Duchess Theatre in London's glittering West End from Monday the 27th of September. My first guest is Andy Burnham, and then the show was always monthly at the other palace. It's now fortnightly at the Duchess Theatre, which is a stunning venue. It's around the corner from The Lion King, um, which is just so thrilling. So the 27th of September, the Monday, the Mayor of Manchester, right at the start of Labour Conference Week. So depending when you, you listen to this, it's either in a couple of days' time or it's tomorrow or it's today or yesterday or, you know, five years ago, depending on when you're listening to this. Um, but yes, the 27th of September, 2021, Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Manchester, at the start of Conference Week. And then a fortnight later, um, Penny Morden, the first ever female Secretary of State for Defence. Then a fortnight after that, Caroline Flint, one of the most talented and outspoken Labour politicians of the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, and then two weeks after that, Anna Sarwal. Two weeks after that, Anthony Scaramucci coming over from New York to do it. Two weeks after that, Jeremy Hunt. Two weeks after that, the Christmas special. And then we start again in the new year every fortnight. You can get tickets for all those shows at mattford.com slash live. On to Anna Turley, who is such a positive, upbeat person uh, and a real pleasure just to talk politics with. And one of those people who comes into politics to sort stuff out and just to get stuff done and that relentless drive towards actually doing things is... Um, <laughs> Not that it's rare at all levels of politics, but um, at a time when Labour's retreated into kind of the worst elements of its ideological obsession, voices like Anna Turley's were quite rare. She lost her seat at the 2019 election, and I began by asking Anna, given that it was almost two years since that general election, how she was finding life outside of Parliament. I can't believe it's nearly two years. It's absolutely flown. Um, and obviously it's not been a normal time, is it, with the, with the pandemic and everything. So, God, yeah, I mean, it's it, obviously it was a shock. I mean, I, I was, you know, I, I knew the election was, uh, you know, going to be horrendous. Um, I was furious with, uh, I remember myself and Nick Dakin almost grabbing Keir, it was actually, by the labels in the voting lobby and saying, why on earth has the Shadow Cabinet just agreed this? This is a disaster. Um and it was, you know, we were not looking forward to it. And a December election, I mean, my God, it was dark by half past three up here. It just, everything about it felt wrong, wrong, wrong. And it was in the middle of a, you know, as, as everyone knows, a really toxic, horrible period where Parliament was just really unpleasant. It was really tough out in, you know, particularly on social media. I mean, people in out on the doors and things were, were fine, but they were angry with us. They were grumpy. They were fed up. They were sick of it. Um, and, you know, frankly, you know, for me, they, they'd seen me in 2017 and said, well, you know, I'm a lifelong Labour voter. I don't like your leader. Go back down there and get rid of him. But we're giving you a chance. And this time the arms were folded and there was a look of anger and rage in a lot of faces of we told you to get rid of him. It, it, you know, why are you still here? Why are you coming back now? And it was very, very difficult. And, you know, people talk about whether it was the Brexit election, you know, get Brexit done. Of course, that had a, an effect. Of course it did. But my doors were four to one Corbyn to Brexit. Um, this being, you know, a a seat that wants to vote Labour in its heart, that that is, you know, historically people would say to me, "Oh, my dad would turn in his grave, my granddad would turn in his grave," but they felt so kind of angry and let down by us that they broke that, um, you know, that that long tradition, and um, it was heartbreaking actually to feel, you know. With some people, when they were sticking with us, you almost wanted to to to, to clasp them by the hand and say thank you, thank you for sticking with us. Um, you know, it was it was it was really tough. Um, so yeah, so you know, it seems a it seems a while ago 
it's you know so much has changed so much has happened since then obviously the first year was tough um trying to kind of come to terms with the abruptness of it all because you go from 16 hour days traveling up and down to london um you know waking up every morning with you know where am i am i am i in regular am i in london what have i got on today what crisis is happening what's been going on the media on social media to just kind of nothing and that, that was it's kind of quite a shock to the system um and i think Jan, i found january and february quite hard you know i didn't really want to kind of it was difficult to go out in the local community i even just going to the shops or to the pub i felt really it was kind of you know it was embarrassing let's be honest you know it was tough it was tough to sort of go out and hold your head high and then of course then lockdown came and weirdly lockdown meant actually was probably you know horrendous as it was for the country and everything else it was what i needed it made it forced me to stop it forced me to stop kind of trying to kind of get back into doing stuff and being hyperactive and it forced me to have the decompression period that i think a lot of mps need when they leave parliament and i found useful things to do i got stuck in with the local food bank here who were obviously having to shut all their warehouses and having a bit of a crisis so i ran the phone line there for people um wanting to get deliveries and vouchers i set up a little book club for getting books to to, to local kids and i and i enjoyed living by the sea i you know walked on the beach every day uh, i did the couch to 5k like last <laughs> the people i did you know i did I, I started painting and writing writing again and you know enjoying life doing the garden stuff that you know i just for for, for more than the five years four and a half years as an mp really for you know most of my career i'd just been kind of plowing forward working really hard you know, aspiring driving and you know trying to deliver and be useful and i actually you know for enforced you know was enforced to take that break and actually you know i think it was it was good it was good for me even though you know obviously there was lots of horrendous stuff happening and you know i had my own personal losses and stuff um you know it was it was a it was a time that i think i needed to just reset really so um yeah and now and now i'm kind of enjoying a very different pace of life and sort of doing lots of different projects pottering uh keeping an eye on you know what's going on furiously tweeting all the time because it's my only outlet now of <laughs> the only way that i can kind of vent and rage against the <laughs> machine uh so just just try you know doing some interesting stuff keeping busy and um you know i think i'm I'd wanted, I was very keen to get into the charity sector, but found that quite difficult. Um, there's obviously a lot of challenges in the, you know, with the charity commission things. And I think politics was very difficult. Plus it was a time with COVID. Um, so I just said to myself, just take a couple of years out, do interesting things and see where you are. And I think I'd stop putting the pressure on myself to kind of get back on the horse, get back on the next big job. And so I'm just kind of enjoying life at the moment, trying to be useful, trying to do interesting things, meet interesting people, learn new stuff, learn new skills. And and yeah, who knows going forward. So democracy is brutal and, and arguably in the sense that it once you're once you lose your seat you have to go uh, is, is all correct um but is there much pastoral care is is there much support from the parliamentary authorities or even from the party once you lose your seat God, no absolutely nothing whatsoever i mean yeah it is it's brutal i mean it's bad enough for me but i think about figures like ed, ed balls people who had big big public presences to stand on that stage on national tv and kind of be sacked <laughs> you know, yeah. it is it is brutal and the moment you step off that platform that's it you're you know it's it's over you are you know you you're just in a way you know you're yourself again and actually i you know i woke up the next morning and because of the extent of the abuse and the stuff that i'd been getting on social media 
one bit of me, you know, there was, I'll be honest, there was a sort of relief that I don't have to endure. Anymore. I don't have to go to bed last thing at night with people telling me about all the, you know, friends telling me about all the awful stuff that was written on social media or waking up first thing in the morning and checking your feed. To see, you know, I, I felt relief from that. But after that, there is there is absolutely nothing. So I, I think we got a nice letter from Keir. I think we got a nice letter from Jeremy. Um, but they were kind of, you know, pro forma letters that went to everybody. Um, there was nothing. I expected like something from the whips or something from the party. There is there is absolutely nothing. And I am hugely, enormously grateful to friends um, who picked up the phone, who checked in, who kind of, you know, had positive suggestions. Other people who'd lost their seats in the past were who I didn't, you know, particularly know, made the effort to reach out. Like, you know, there was an informal network. I think the Tories are much, much better at kind of reaching out and looking after each other uh, than than we are. Uh, I was that, surprised. Jimmy? And, you know, it wasn't so bad. For... I think, I mean, inevitably, there's the sort of, you know, the priorities of the party. I totally get that. The priorities of the country. So it's like, right, you know, where do we go from here? We had a leadership election to deal with. You know, I totally understand everyone's focus was on that. And I totally, you know, that's, I have no problem with that at all because, you know, the day we're all just do doing our bit for the party in whatever way that is, putting our shoulders to the wheel. So I don't feel like I needed, you know, I, 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 I just done my bit for the party. That was all I tried to do my bit for the party. But there were colleagues who, and you know, I was lucky because I don't have dependents. Um, you know, I, uh, I've got really loving family and friends, and I have a hinterland outside of politics. So it, it was fine for me. I had, I had, you know, had my support networks. But I know there were colleagues who, you know, had three children, and suddenly, you know, you're losing your income. Um, people think MPs get this big payoff, but it's about a month. You know, you get about a month's salary. Um, and so there were colleagues with kids who I was worried about. There were obviously people like Paula Sheriff going through um, her um, breast cancer situation. You know, there are a lot of people that I think were really kind of struggling, and I'm not sure that that support was there. And I definitely think going forward, the party has to do that. I think for some, some as I say, some colleagues were absolutely lovely and, you know, reached out. Other colleagues didn't, and that was a surprise. And you think, I think sometimes maybe there was a bit of sort of survivor's awkwardness there that people kind of, you know, didn't know what to say or what to do. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to be self-indulgent about it. We, you know, they say the priority is the party and the disaster was for the party, not for me. You know, the, the disaster was the Labour Party's election results since the 30s and, you know, absolute devastation and a Tory government that's now wrecking havoc. So that's the, that's, that was the tragedy of December the, you know, 13th that not 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 us but you you talk about the party's priorities being the country and that's correct but the Labour Party also calls itself the People's Party it, it tells itself and indeed it tells everyone else that it's more moral and more caring yet it doesn't seem to look after its own very well well, I, yeah, I think that there's definitely stuff that, that they can put in place, I think, for future. And I think I think people, you know, I, 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 I have some sympathy because your focus right up until the 12th of December is winning. And that's the absolute priority. And then your focus on the 13th of December is, you know, moving forward, getting a new leader, sorting the party out, dealing with the devastation. And so, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're right. But, you know, we... 
we all play our part. We all play our role in the party, don't we? We're all that. We're not there for ourselves. We're there to put our shoulders to the wheel, to pass the torch on, to support other people, to to you know do stuff for the future. So I don't I don't feel any kind of bitterness or anger to the towards the party about that. Um, I just think you know it should be there's stuff that should be put in place on a practical level. It's a management thing, and I'd hope going forward, and I'd be happy to kind of help you know discuss that with people about what they can do but as said you know we are we are the priority is 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 getting the party ready for the next election and putting the public first really you talk about the relief of not having to check your mentions on twitter and see what uh, you know awful things people have said to be clear on where those awful comments were coming from are you talking about your political opponents inside or outside of the party it was it was both. Uh, it was, 2019 was horrendous um, for someone like me who was kind of t- trying to take a very difficult and challenging position on Brexit, where you know I, I knew I had a 67% leave seat, and you know I, I voted to trigger Article 50 because I wanted to make that work, and you know I, I believed in democracy, whatever the flaws with the, with the democracy around that that referendum. Um, but uh, increasingly as time went on, I couldn't support something. I was getting more and more evidence from chambers of commerce, from local businesses, from, you know, ironically, I think about energy companies that we had before us in the select committee now, you know, story after story about what was happening. And I just thought, I can't, I can't support this. I cannot endorse this. And having been through the closure of the steelworks very early in my time as an MP, 2,300 people losing their jobs overnight, the devastation that created in the community, the knock-on effect, to a community that was already struggling from high unemployment and deindustrialization, high levels of poverty. Uh, I just couldn't endorse an action that was going to make people here worse off um, with all the things that we're we're seeing now and more to come. so I, I, you know, it's difficult and challenging to take that position, and so I got, you know, obviously the the far right in the northeast had a real um, kind of vendetta, and they really targeted female MPs. So, you know, myself, Bridget, Ellen Goodman, uh, Julie Elliott. You know, there was a lot of coordinated activity um, that I was that was flagged up to me by anti-fascist groups actually in the north northeast. Um, particularly targeted around us as women. And so that had become extremely difficult. Um, you know, I'd had to have, like like many female MPs, all the security on my house, um, office got vandalised, stuff like that. That was that was hard. And in many ways, that was, that was the most heartbreaking thing because I'd worked really hard right from when I was first selected in 2012 to be on my community side to fight for them, to stand up for them, to make sure that I was carrying their voice to parliament, to feel like I was really, you know, speaking on their behalf. And it felt like there was a sort of deliberate wedge being exploited and created um, by people calling us, you know, traitors and, you know, saying we're not respecting the referendum and trying deliberately to stoke a division between us and the community. Um, And that was very difficult and frustrating and painful to try and say to people, look, you know, I've, I've just got to, I'm trying to do what's in the best interests of this area. I'm not just going to, you know, harm, I'm not going <laughs> to harm this area just because you, you're you telling me it's going to be fine. I don't believe you. Um, so, so, so the stuff from the far right was really, really difficult and became very toxic and social media can really flip suddenly. I mean, one of the things I've I spent the following year kind of reflecting on and doing some work on was the use of Facebook and social media in local areas and particularly sort of local community groups, uh, which, you know, have been set up sort of to say they're non political but really followed a political agenda and I think the Tories were very very kind of heavily involved in this working with a lot of independents and so on and you could really see a shift 
uh, in kind of small M momentum over that last year, where those groups got taken over, where stuff got shared, where lies were perpetrated in those groups. Um, I mean, there were some classics like, um, yeah, I was a millionaire, I lived in London, um, I had a gay lover in London, you know, all sorts of things, you know, were, were, were going around on these groups that were just complete nonsense. And you couldn't, um, you couldn't, and the worst thing was, you know, I remember knocking on a door and someone saying, oh, I'm not going to vote for you because you fell asleep in Parliament. And I said, what are you talking about? Of course I didn't fall asleep in Parliament. Where's this come from? And it turned out there was like a photograph going around that had been doctored to sort of look like my eyes were shut when I'm sort of looking down. And this, you just, you know, it was, it was really quite a... a incredible to see the effect that social media hyperlocal social media could have on kind of creating or destroying you know reputations and narratives so that was very very difficult kind of in terms of the far going back to your original question yeah you know i it was really really difficult getting stuff from the far left obviously there's my well documented unite case which was you know extremely time consuming extremely emotionally difficult and just frankly ridiculous um but you know you, you've got to stand up for someone libels you you've got to stand up for yourself um and uh and you know so so i felt kind of under siege from there we were going through our reselections i mean that took that was three months of my reselection but and we we had you know i was reselected because four of the first four branches had had um had their meetings but we were still waiting on one more branch to to um to decide before uh, I could formally say I'd been reselected, and then the election came, and it was three months of wasted energy having these battles on, you know, reselections, meetings that were grotesque. There were people um, joining with the far right on these sites, on these far right sites, to attack and abuse me, to lie about me, to, you know, just spread misinformation. It was, it, yeah, it, it became so toxic from both sides. It, for, it was really quite, um, yeah, it was unpleasant. So people from the far left. Well, on the same sites as the people on the far right. Yeah, yeah. We had Labour Party members leaking information about our CLP meetings. We had them on there talking about openly about trying to deselect me to the on, the, on right. the far right sites. Yeah. Oh my God. So yeah, the, so so these these were far right groups. I mean, obviously they they were you know broader membership, but they were initiated by the far right yeah. and by by anti anti Brexit kind of you know toxic people and and yeah members of the Labour Party were joining that. This is this is what you know this is what we were all dealing with, and a lot of MPs won't sort of talk about it because we have this you know we don't we, you don't want to kind of expose the kind of nasty underworkings of your party, but this is the reality. And many colleagues were facing a lot worse than 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 me on this as well. This is where we were, I'm afraid. Just before we come on to, to the hard left uh, and the legal case and everything, when, because I'm always fascinated by this, and I, I'm never entirely sure what the answer is, but I remember, I don't remember a guy called Ian Riley who used to work for the Labour Party, but I remember he always used to say, you, you know, you'd always get candidates going, oh, the Lib Dems have put out a leaflet about me and it's full of spurious lies. And he always used to say, if candidate A says that candidate B is a paedophile, the last thing candidate B should do is put out a leaflet saying I'm not a paedophile. So you kind of amplify yeah. the message. Now, that picture of you that was doctored of you being asleep is very different to being accused of being a paedophile. But nevertheless, you're in a situation where, it, of course, it's nonsense but, and you have to rebut it. But equally, rebutting it kind of draws attention to it. So what is the best thing to do and how did you handle it? Well, so so it's really at the time, my my 
my priority was just getting on with my job. You know, I was dealing with Brexit, I was dealing with, say, all the issues around high unemployment, you know, the, so much going on, huge amount of casework. That was my, that was my priority. So I was kind of very, very focused on my work. And, you know, I said, the worst thing was you'd, you'd get really lovely party members, really supportive people sending you stuff at 10 o'clock saying, oh my God, have you seen what they're saying about you? And oh, no. I just said, look, this is just Facebook. It's just Facebook trolls. Let's just ignore it. You know, let's just crack on. But it, but then when you lose and you think, my, like, it's really hard to know, to extrapolate what effect that stuff had. Um, but I know, you know, it did damage my, my kind of personal reputation. Um, so you know whether or not that that made the difference i don't know so it's it's only afterwards on the reflection when i then spent time in my year with not much to do going through these facebook sites and looking at stuff um and i actually you know i ended up complaining to facebook about some of the stuff so i, I typed into this this kind of one uh, group that was set up to, to have a go at me and i just typed in the word bitch to, to just to see and there were 35 uses of that word and so i just screenshotted that and sent that to facebook and it's just like how can you allow these sites that are unmoderated that are and you know they and it, it was almost like what what was difficult in those groups was that people were almost like competing to, as to who could kind of have the strongest most aggressive view about me some would say oh well you know if i saw or i'd blah 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 and some would say well if i saw or i'd blah why don't we smash the windows in or blah blah and it was almost like people were kind of competing as to who'd be the most aggressive now these you know these could just be kind of facebook trolls when you're walking your dog in the street or you're walking through the high street to go and see a charity or you know do something in your community you don't know who's walking towards you and it's so hugely unsettling because you know you're seeing this stuff knowing it's in a local group and you know the, these are people that are living in your area so it, it was that was uh that was kind of yeah that was difficult so it's hard to sort of extrapolate you know i tried to ignore it as i say at the time but did we trick i think the broader lesson for the party and for candidates of people going forwards is to really monitor these particularly the local sites not so much the sites set up to attack you i don't think there's much you can do about that but what we were finding on groups that are like you know you know you're from x when or x and you know grain shannon proud or record blog or whatever you know everyone has these groups in their areas is to just make sure that you don't allow a narrative to run on there and that you have party members you have friends you have people rebutting all the time and challenging and promoting good positive stuff because it, um, and it's hard because what we found was people would would go on there and defend me and then they'd get blocked from the group because of the you know the admins were, were political so so but i you know, my my suggestion would be everyone to keep an eye on these groups because there is a whole conversation happening there which is where people are getting their views and their perspectives on politics because let's be honest they're not buying Hardy and they're not even possibly a lot of them buying the mirror you know they're getting their views from their friends and their peers and their neighbors on social media on Facebook in particular um and we just weren't there in that debate um and I was saying as I said you know that it's just Facebook trolls let's just keep on with doing our positive stuff on our site paying for our adverts pushing stuff out but there was another whole conversation happening in these groups that we weren't aware of now as I say you know how much effect that had on the, the result who knows but i spent the year afterwards thinking i think you know we missed the trick and that all came up really in the last year it didn't exist really in 2015 you know when i when i was first selected it was very much a sort of post 2016 um and particularly that last year uh, it really it really sort of mushroomed it must be i mean i've seen abuse people get on social media i've seen abuse i get i think the abuse that um women get is far worse that women MPs get is, is particularly distressing. 
I mean, it's easy to go, oh, it's just trolls. But when you're reading stuff about yourself and it's local, and as you say, these people are competing to be as violent about you as they can. I mean, there must have been times when you did feel unsafe. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I worried about my staff a lot as well. You know, my caseworker sort of work, you know, walking home dark early to, to her car. Like there was lots of, you know, yeah, it, 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 it was it was unpleasant. And, and in the back of our minds all the time was Joe. And and I think that that's another thing that I found. It became a bit of a sort of perpetuating thing where we got police advice saying don't advertise where you're going and you know in 2015 i loved just having a street store in the high street i always advertised my surgeries i always kind of said where i was going and after joe was killed we had to stop doing that so surgeries became appointment only and and i my frustration there was that i actually felt uh, that i was getting a bit dis more disconnected from the community because i couldn't just pop up and do stuff or advertise where I was going to be and say, come and see me, come and chat, come and have a coffee morning. It became much more difficult in the climate to do stuff like that. So it sort of perpetuated a thing where you felt like you got more disconnected. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was very difficult. And as I say, you just, you know, you, you, a lot of it was just, you know, was a so, sort of social media thing because knocking on doors, people were always unfailingly lovely and chatted. And even if they weren't voting, they would explain their reasons or their disappointment. And, you know, they might have a kind of moan and a chunter, but, you know, we never got anything. I think I think one colleague got some abuse um, and he was he was an ex-army officer. So, you know, he got they got pretty short shrift. But on the whole, you know, three elections in four and a half years. We didn't have anything on the doorstep. People, people were always kind of unfailingly nice. But, um, but yeah, there was something about social media that just enabled this discussion and this conversation to take place. And you never knew how, whether it would spill out or not. And that's that's the uncertainty. So you've got all that going on, and at the same time as facing reselection, then re-election, you're fighting this legal case against a blog site called Squawkbox, which some listeners may be aware of. It's a Pro Corbyn, hard left. I don't know how you would describe it. News site isn't the right phrase. It's basically a sort of gossip site. Um, and you're fighting a legal case at the time against them and Unite the Union. So just take us through it from the start. How did that begin? Well, they'd, um, print, I think it was prior to the 2017 elections, they'd, um, they were having quite a concerted effort, I think, to undermine um, moderate uh, MPs. And I'd seen a few articles about my colleague, Tom Blenkinsop and stuff. And um, and they printed one about me that was uh, untrue and libelous. So uh, again, at the time I was thinking, like with most things, you think, do I just, do I ignore it? Do I just bother? And I thought, well, no, because this was a serious accusation of fraud. And I thought that's, that will just linger. That will just stay there, and people will keep pointing to it. And I thought, I'm, I'm just not having it. So, uh, so I approached a, a, a libel lawyer recommended to me by a friend, and yeah, you know, we wrote to them, and the information that they'd used had been linked to them, we believe, by um, Unite. And so, you know, we approached them both, um, asked them to retract and remove it. They didn't, and it went on for, you know. What was it best part of two years incredibly all the way to the court yeah i couldn't believe it you know we made numerous offers to to settle but they were rejected um and you know i thought you, you can't back down in these situations you've got to keep going and i was very lucky to have you know great lawyers and you know it, it uh, and and uh, insurance because it was such a clear-cut case and 
you know, it went all the way. And, you know, I was very, very pleased the judge found in, in my favour. Um, but I mean, what a shameful and appalling waste of union members' money to pursue a vendetta um, through the courts. And and the judge, you know, actually sort of raised this, was that they used the court process to continue to try and uh, double down on further libel. So that so they got their QC in the courtroom to say that I was not fit to be an MP. And this was a week into the, the 2019 election. So, of course, the splash on the front page of my local paper, the Gazette, was not fit to be an MP. So, you know, it was, like they, it was incredible that the, how they used the process to just continue to, to double down and, you know, ultimately to the cost of over £2 million of members' money. Appalling, absolutely appalling. So on what basis did they say you were not fit to be an MP? Well, they, they tried to, because they weren't winning their case, they tried to turn it around and say that I was uh, a liar, that I'd lied through this case, that everything was fabricated. Um, and that was that was their, and, and their QC tried to say, uh, well, essentially in his introductory comments said, I've, I've got a mountain to climb to prove this, but essentially, essentially acknowledging that he was given a political statement to make so it was you know it was and the, and the judge you know as i said in his statement recognized this and um and that's why the damages i got were were, were, were substantial so in the court bit was len mccluskey there did, did those people turn up Howard Beckett was there. No, Len, Len wasn't there. Um, Howard was there. And um, but, you know, they made a great <laughs> I think one of the reasons why they were so keen on this vendetta was because a, a while before I'd um, tweeted, I'd sent a tweet um, referring to Len McCluskey as an arsehole. And they were obviously so uh, annoyed about that. I think that was part of the, the root cause why this so vigorously so of course that was brought up in the in the courtroom and they tried to make me apologize for that but i said you know the whole point in this case is you're, you're trying to prove that um, my integrity and it would be disingenuous of me to say that's not the case and apologize because it remains my view so um that <laughs> didn't go down particularly well um but it was you know it's the truth so um in, in my opinion so but no len wasn't there but howard beckett was very much there and very much the driving force behind all of this including you know the accusations made against me and lengthy attempts to uh, to further smear me through the, the process of that case. So surreal to have one of the biggest funders of the Labour Party attacking a Labour MP. No, I mean, Unite were closer to Jeremy Corbyn than any other trade union. Did Jeremy Corbyn ever get in touch with you? Did he ever offer any help? Did the party ever offer any help? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, no, um, no, definitely not. It was just it was very isolating really and um there was a number of you know that unite wrote to a number of other mps who had been mentioned in kind of whatsapp groups and things to try and uh reel them in which is one of the hardest things about it actually because i you know i was quite happy to fight this myself and um you know it was what it was my decision to do it but i was i was you know it was pretty awful that they tried to bring other mps into this as well um but that was part of the political sort of agenda behind behind the case so but no there was no never any contact again it was you know it was friends and colleagues People saying, brilliant, good on you, you know, thank well done for standing up to them, good luck, um, you know, they're the mafia, <laughs> you know, uh, you must be mad, but good luck to you. <laughs> it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. 
You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because you'd served for a while in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow team for, for, well, less than a year. You were the shadow minister for civil society under Jeremy Corbyn from 2015 to 2016. How surreal was that period? Well, I mean, I'd always got on well with Jeremy. I'd, I'd lived in Islington North for four years. He was my MP. Um, we had a good relationship. I campaigned for him. Um, you know, we went to Labour Party events. Um, we went, you know, went door knocking together. I was, you know, I, I liked him as a guy, as a, as a constituency MP, in the full knowledge, as was okay then. People disagreed about stuff. You knew you had a spectrum of people in the Labour Party. You knew you had people with different views and perspectives. And that was just how it was. And you kind of, you know, you muddled through. And, um, but obviously it was, you know, I would always have said he, that I didn't believe he was fit to be leader of the Labour Party. Nice as he was, he just wasn't going to win an election. And that, for me, is the fundamental purpose of the leader of the Labour Party, the person you're putting forward to be prime minister. So that was, you know, I was always kind of open about that. But um, I was I was honoured to, to serve in the cabinet because I think we were all at that point saying, OK, you know, let's just make the best of it. He's been elected by the members. Let's make things work. Um, you know, we we just lost the election we wanted to you know set out a, a, a sort of good path forward and the opportunity to work on you know sort of policy working with charities in the third sector was really important um for me because you know personally believe how you know they're massively fundamental to, to tackling the big problems that we face in society so i was really excited about setting a program working with them um and you know and, and seeing what we could do um and de developing policy for the Labour party but after brexit um you know i couldn't i i had to resign i just i was so I was so mortified that we'd lost. I was so appalled by the lack of campaigning, the lack of cut through to, to core voters, Labour voters, that enough was enough. And when the no confidence motion came through, I signed it because, as I said, I was clear that, that I didn't believe he was going to win an election, therefore should not be leader of the Labour Party and, you know, should, should, um, should, should not be, should, you know, should, be, should stand down. That was my expectation that if someone didn't have the support of their members of parliament had an 80% no confidence motion whether you're a, a you know a teacher or a you know working in a uh, any sort of team or in a in a football dressing room you know if if you lose the support of 80% of your staff i think you would question whether you're there to carry on um and so that you know it was very very frustrating to then see the sort of stitch up that was done at the nec and then the subsequent um campaign the chicken coup all of this sort of stuff that was turned to their uh to their advantage um to, to uh, you know just to, to say that we'd overturned members rights and all this sort of stuff well i'm sorry that was the constitution of the Labour party we were constitutionally entitled to pass a motion of no confidence in the leader that was you know and that was our view that was very strongly my view after brexit Yes, and the public agreed with you, which is a sort of crucial point in all this, is that you're absolutely in tune with the country and your assessment of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, 
it looks like Keir Starmer might try and change the rules around how the Labour Party selects its leader. It'll be one of many Labour leaders that have changed the rules in one direction or the other. Um, presumably that's a, a rule change that you'd support. Yeah, it is actually. Um, I think I think I might have written something on this a few years ago. I, th I think it, it's absolutely right. It's not to say that MPs' votes should count more than members or anything like that, but there is a fundamental issue here, which is that you you know we live in a democracy. We live in a parliamentary democracy where you are essentially electing the first among equals of, of your members of parliament to lead the party, and no one sees more closely the members of parliament how other mps do in parliament we're sat in a chamber for hours we're sat you know we, we sat in these committees you see who can lead who can communicate who can engage with people who can get stuff done who can achieve change and who's got a, an analysis of where the country is where the public is what the party should be doing we just you know by virtue not by being better but by, by being in those positions we are um, in the best place to judge that, in my view. And I think, you know, particularly with social media now, uh, maybe this is the way politics is going in terms of sort of creating a, a populist persona-based politics. We see it successfully with Boris Johnson. But my feeling was, watching the, the leadership, the two leadership elections, was that it's very easy to create an image of a leader through social media, through clipping videos, through rallies, through blah, blah, blah. You can create, and everyone, everyone can project onto this person what they want them to be. But the reality is actually, it's those that are there day in, day out, seeing how people perform and contribute, who are the ones that know who's who's up to it. And people say, you know, I, I only spoke at the PLP a couple of times, you know, as a backbencher, I never had to present to the PLP. But speaking in the PLP is one of the most terrifying things. And I think every MP would, uh, every Labour MP would agree with that. It's ferocious. You are being judged by your peers who are very, you know, have very, very high standards of what they want from their leader and their front bench. And so, you know, I, what I'm, I'm frustrated that in all this discussion debate, I'm not actually hearing many people set out the reasons why it's really it, we should go back to the electoral college rather you know there are fundamental reasons why it matters as well as you know the importance of, of the trade unions in this process and you know i know we've just had that long conversation but i'm i'm a proud trade unionist i'm a big believer in the role of trade unions big believer in their contribution when it's positive um to, to the party and I, you know i, I think it, it's vital to me that they have a fundamental uh, role in this and their members crucially have a fundamental role in this you know we when trade unions go bad and, and you know people exploit individuals to their own ends it's a disaster but trade unions properly run and trade union members properly having their say is fundamental to to the lifeblood of, of this party so you know I, I think the electoral college is is the best place to best best way forward but um you know people will say well you would say that but it, it it comes from you know my experience of watching um and and scrutinizing colleagues and recognizing what are the skills that are best needed for someone to to lead the party the election and govern. Also, I mean, this sort of possibly started during the Ed Miliband period, definitely became popular during the Jeremy Corbyn period, is MPs should have more of a say. And I don't understand why more MPs don't say that. They seem terrified of their own members. This whole stuff about party democracy, the public don't care. They expect the people who actually have to do the job to be given the powers in order to do it. They don't want Labour MPs to constantly have to go through reselections. You know, most of the public, when they find a Labour leader that they're willing to vote for, and as we know, there haven't been many, there's only been one in our lifetime, 
they don't care what the Labour Party membership think. They think they probably think the whole thing's a massive distraction. That actually, holds those people back from being better leaders. So MPs themselves, as a block, have to have to defend their right to have more power. They are elected members of Parliament. That should come, and it's not a privilege. It's not a status thing. It's a necessary part of the job. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think it's, you know, it was really difficult during that sort of Corbyn era to look at colleagues and see people who were deliberately on you know, all sorts of policy areas, but just on anti-Semitism is the classic, people who are not willing to stand up for this most fundamental anti-racist issue because they were terrified of their members. I was, it was quite a shock and quite an eye opener to me. And I just thought that was really sad. And, you know, it's horrible being, feeling like you're at war with your members. And I had some really, really challenging GCs, you know, on issues like Syria, but I think, you know, also on the scripple poisonings. I remember, you know, having to, to stand up and, and being told that, you know, MI5 was behind this and, you know, why aren't we working with Russia on the sample? Like, it was, oh you know, there was some God. genuinely just like, um, Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, honestly, you know, being heckled when you're trying to kind of explain, you know, this in a, in a parliamentary report. So that it is, there is some real issues. You know, there, we have fantastic members. I love, you know, I, lo I love our Labour Party membership, but we can't not acknowledge the fact that our membership inevitably is to the left of where the public are. That is just, that is why they have joined the Labour Party. And so MPs have to do that really difficult thing of challenging their membership taking them to where the public are and you know making sure that they can sort of be you know a bridge and that, and, that, and that's why they have a really important role in this but i think the nature of our system and particularly the reselection means that that it's really difficult for mps to challenge um their party membership to disagree with their party membership and um that's why you know we we end up in a in a really difficult situation that's what I think is one of the biggest challenges for this party going forward the Tories don't care about that you know they're obviously they're, they're too far the other way but they're so fundamentally ruthlessly focused on power that they don't give a monkeys about them as if they've even got any I'm not even sure they have any Tory members in in Redcliffe Cleveland hardly a handful um you know uh, uh Jacob Young the Tory MP here proudly said knock on a single door at the last election you know they they're not they don't, that whole infrastructure that we you know believe in that is the lifeblood of our party they have absolutely no interest in and it enables them to be utterly utterly ruthless uh, you know we don't, i'm not suggesting we go down their path but a bit more of a focus on our clause one would be nice Yes, to, to actually form a government um, for, for people not um, not yeah. as uh, famous with the Labour Party constitution Sorry, yeah. <laughs> as you or I might be. <laughs> the fundamental purpose of the Labour Party. Yeah. Yes, indeed, yeah. Um, before you became an MP, in fact, many years before, you were a special advisor under the previous Labour government to, to David Blunkett and then to Henry Armstrong. You, you were a spad to David Blunkett when he was at uh, work and pensions. What was he like to work for? He was brilliant. Um, I mean, I started off actually as a civil servant in the Home Office. So I was, you know, formally politically neutral. I started off as a, as a sort of graduate on the Fast Stream scheme. Um, and that was brilliant. Worked on um, youth crime, worked on um, closing the Songat Refugee Centre in France on what we called just juxtaposed controls then, which was about sort of stopping um, illegal migration um, in France. Lots of lessons for uh, Prissy Patel. I'm happy to, to talk to her about. Um, David was phenomenal. Um, and then when he resigned in... Um, 
from from being home secretary or was sacked whatever way you want to describe it um i went to work with him in parliament um i'd had enough of the civil service i was frustrated that it, it just felt very kind of slow very bureaucratic and you know i realized that actually politics was how you got things done how you made things happen and and, and was about your values and what you believe in and what you stood for and i realized that i couldn't hand on heart say that I wasn't I was a civil servant that would serve any party of the day because I knew what my values were and so I, I sort of kind of made that shift into politics and working for David was probably a big part of inspiring me to do that actually because he was phenomenal he, he everything he did every decision he made had the people of Sheffield Brightside at the heart of it he had a phenomenal antennae for where the British public were and what they wanted him to do but more than that the thing that I got most from working for him was his absolute relentless pursuit of change and progress he was exhausting you know you come in in the morning to 12 15 voicemails on your phone where you had been working until two in the morning kind of really angry about this why hasn't this been done make this happen um and it, you know civil servants would just kind of roll their eyes in frustration but and I realise now that was that's what 18 years of opposition does to you when you've sat on the back benches and you've endured 18 years of a Tory government, my God, you get you make every minute count when you get into government. And that was the biggest thing that I, I learned and took from David that he, you know, you and I, I always say to people, you never know in politics and it you know, proved to be true whether you have six months or six years, you know, you never know how long you've got in the job. So you have to kind of make every single day count and try and achieve as much as you can. Uh, in the in the time you've got, and and David was like that, and it was phenomenal to 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 be able to work for him. Um, and we're still great friends now. And um, you know, he's uh, he's he's much more relaxed um, and uh, fun um, person to be around now than he was as Home Secretary. Um, <laughs> but that kind of uh, anger and desire for change has never has never left him. So, had you been a member of the Labour Party before you joined the civil service, or was that when your kind of political awakening happened? Uh, no, I was a Labour voter. So I was, I mean, I was 18 in 1997. So that was just phenomenal for me. Um, in 78, I never didn't know anything but a Tory government growing up. And I just remember that feeling of like, throwing off the shackles, casting my first boat, you know, new dawn had broken, is it not? You know, it was amazing. <laughs> I, you know, at the age of 18, looking around the country, just seemed so full of unemployment, so unfair, so unequal, so much homelessness, so much, I mean, you know, just so much strife. And it was just, you know, so, so, you know, I was very much of that era of, you know, this was, this was something powerful and fantastic and things could be different. And oh my God, a Labour Party that looked like normal people, it had women in it, it had disabled people in it, it spoke in different accents and normal accents, you know, it was, it was, it was fantastic. And, and, and it was what I'd, I'd seen on my telly, you know, growing up. So, so that was, I was, you know, in, sort of inspired from that, but. I, no, I didn't join the party really until well, I joined while I was a civil servant in the Home Office and start, as I started to get more and more kind of closer to the politics and more aware of, of, of you know, the, the power of politics to, to drive change um, rather than the kind of civil service digging the heels in sort of approach. And where do your politics come from? Were your parents political? Not at all, not at all. So, 
I come from, a, I guess, I mean, I was, I had a sort of middle class upbringing, but I come from really originally a working class family. So my grandparents on my mom's side, uh, my granddad was a dustman on my dad's side, um, is bus driver and then a lorry driver. Um, my mom was a secretary. Um, my dad um, left school at 15 without any qualifications, got a job as a coffee boy in a bank and um, then graduated from the, co the coffee machines to the Xerox machines and then the Xerox machines to the computers in the 80s. And if you get into computers in the city of London in the 80s, you, you kind of do all right. Um, but I think they voted, if they did vote, they, I think they voted Conservative. I know my grandparents were working class Conservative voters. Um, so I kind of grew up, I guess, with that sort of working class sort of aspiration. Um, but I guess for me, it was it was very much sort of, it was growing up in the 80s and it was that kind of new Labour. I think I always had a sense of a social conscience, but it was never politically, party politically articulated because I didn't come you know, we weren't a family that sat around the dining table and had chats about politics. You know, we sat and watched the telly, you know, with dinner on our laps. We, so, so for me, it was very, it, it's been forged myself by my experience, by looking around me, you know, by understanding the world around me and then seeing what change can do from inside government. Um, and that's, I think, why I'm a very sort of practical person in terms of winning elections and getting stuff done i'm not an you know i ideologies just kind of bore me um you know i have very strong values very clear values on social justice and for me the labor party is the only party that has ever achieved those things you know the, the entire 20th century says to me that the labor party is the party that does the good stuff you know that is that is the that is the story of our history um and i'm you know that's why for me the labor party is the greatest vehicle for social progress and that's why i want to put my shoulder to the wheel and make it happen but it's also why i think i'm so hugely frustrated when it fails to to have that purpose and just get self-indulgent and um unrealistic because i'm i'm a very kind of practical person who wants practical change and you know wants it now you you want a scholarship to a school called the ashford school which is a a boarding and day school i mean you're the least boarding school person i've ever met <laughs> we, we were boarders yeah, yeah. Did, you, did you stay there no, no, God, no, no. Yeah, I got an academic scholarship. Um, I, I'd been kind of bullied a bit in primary school and stuff, and I think for being a girly swat, basically, I was, I was probably really annoying. Uh, I was always the front of the class, the hand up, doing my homework. I was really, really good, and that, I think that was pushed by my mum because she, um, she, she, she was able to stay on and do her A levels, but only because the school had to write to my grandparents and basically demand that she get to stay and do her A levels. My grandparents wanted her to go to move to to go and get a job. And my mum was really, really bright, is really bright and never got opportunity. Obviously, you know, neither of my parents went to university or anything like that. And I think my mum felt a little bit aggrieved. She loved school, that she never got the opportunity to kind of achieve what she could have achieved and study. So she always pushed us to kind of work hard and take our opportunities at school and stuff. So as I said, I was a proper kind of girly swap. And um, so then getting a scholarship to brilliant school and at the age of 11 god I didn't have any socialist values I thought wow I get to go to a school that's got tennis courts and um you know I get to put, do plays and I get to learn languages and I was just really excited by that um but then it was quite a shock to the system because say although we were sort of, you know we were sort of early middle class there was a lot of kind of landed families there and stuff and I think you know I definitely developed a bit of a sort of class awareness there which then went on into Oxford as well and I wouldn't say I'm a chip on the shoulder type of person, but I can definitely see I have a bullshit radar for 
people from a certain class and background and you know i do like to um you know poke them uh, and annoy them and and resent them <laughs> uh so, so yeah i think you know being kind of exposed to that i see that i do feel like i see their ways and um you know i it, yeah I, but but i was so lucky it was it was very much an academic school it wasn't really you know it was very focused on achievement and stuff so again I, you know i just worked hard played in all the sports teams took it i've always taken all the opportunities that have come my way and tried to make the most of how lucky I've been. I'm very conscious how lucky I've been in my life and I've always grabbed everything that's come come my way um, to, to make the best of it and then and hopefully give, give stuff back as well. So, As well as being a Labour MP, you were also a chair of the Cooperative Party. And obviously there have been Labour and Co-op MPs I used to work for, and Andy Reid was Labour and Co-op. But what does the Co-op Party do that the Labour Party doesn't? I love the cart party so much. Um, honestly, like it's just, it's got no edge to it. Like all the people, I found the people there so sort of, um, <laughs> honestly the people in the cup party are lovely. They're kind of really committed. Um, and I, I really liked the values of, uh, you know, of equality of, of people having a stake. There's something I think the cart party speaks to around self-help um as well as kind of cooperation and working together and that's always been a core part of my views whether it's on kind of brexit or anything else or, or fundamentally you know oh, you achieve more than you know than you achieve we achieve alone it, it's for me fundamentally is is the idea of working together and working in in partnership and cooperation and i always found the car party a very positive place to be on all of its campaigns because it's always about working together about partnership, about helping people to help themselves and do the best they can. Um, and I just, you know, it's, uh, there's a really, really great place for the party, I think, particularly in um, politics, because we all talk about, you know, Brexit and the big issues and whether people in, whether it's Redwall or where else, feeling alienated, feeling like they don't have a place in politics, that they feel powerless against big global corporations or in democracy generally, or in the way services are delivered to them, like council works. All we talk all the time about this lack of voice and lack of power for people. And that's what goes fundamentally to the heart of the cult party is about people having power, people having voice, people having a say, people working together to make that happen rather than services or organizations doing stuff to people. And I just think it's kind of never been more important than now, really. So, yeah, I love I love the cult party. I think, you know, it's 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 a fundamental sort of strand of the Labour Party with a great history and a very relevant future, I think. So, um, yeah, love it. Uh, one of the things you had to deal with as an MP, obviously in, in the northeast of England, in Redcar, was the sort of closure of the steelworks, really, and the, and the legacy and the community. And you were able to get huge amounts of money out of the government um, for ex-steel workers. Um, as a Labour MP, getting that help from a Conservative government, uh, that must have taken incredible effort and skill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're always your worst critic. I'm, you know, I, I'm angry that the steelworks shut. Like, I, you know, that that didn't need to happen. They they could have kept that open. They could have had some form of state aid to keep it going until a buyer was found, um, as the Labour government had done um, 
in, in 2010, it didn't need to happen. It was an act of industrial vandalism and it threw, you know, as I said, over 2000 people on the dole, plus the ripple out effects of people that I spoke to, people who worked in hairdressers, in, uh, you know, in news agents, in local shops, everyone was affected because people had less money in their pocket. And to take that money out of a local economy, which was, say, already on its knees, already struggling with austerity, already still feeling the the implications of, of the crash, was just cruel um, and brutal and needless and just felt like another kick in the teeth to people here who feel like they're always crapped on, frankly, that nobody cares, that nobody stood up for them. And, you know, all of that, I think, fed into the kind of Brexit stuff that, that and, and a lot of the issues that you see, you know, Andy Burnham talking and others talking about around kind of the London sense of things, you know, pe people do feel that they're ignored and they're taken for granted. And so, so, so that was hugely, hugely powerful. And, and so my, you know, it was desperate. My, my job for the, you know, first really year of being an MP was just to try and um, help as many people as possible in the face of this terrible tragedy and that was you know the money I got from got from government we worked in a task force to um, help people firstly with kind of personal loans to, to help them through difficulties with mortgages or rents and so on we we got um, payments so that companies if they took on a former steel worker they would get a subsidy a wage subsidy to help um, help them take people on we got people loans so they could start up their own businesses we managed to get the DWP to actually change some of its rules around kind of um, benefit support so that they could get emergency help to people we got millions of pounds into retraining so everyone had f access to free retraining through the colleges um, there was a big, you know, uh, local partnership pulling together that made all that happen with the colleges, with the local authorities, with the trade unions and with ourselves. Um, so hopefully we mitigated the kind of worst of it, but it was still a horrendous time. You know, I'd, I'd have surgeries where, you know, grown men would be crying because, you know, they'd, they'd lost everything. They'd lost their identity. They'd lost their ability to feed their families. There were lots of relationship breakdowns. You know there was still there were suicides for for years um to come after that as a consequence it was really really horrendous and 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 so much of that formed say you know particularly my views on brexit and things that i tried to do afterwards because i just tried desperately to protect the community from anything like that happening again and i guess you know you could analyze how much that fed into people feeling like they were um the, the, the global tides could come and go and people could be left behind and no one was there to defend them and stand up for them and they would keep completely at the behest of these global steel companies or changes in global markets and left to the left to rot um and i think a lot of that kind of fueled the sort of the grievance and the anger um that played out in the years to come after that um so it was yeah it was hugely um powerful and we you know still struggling with it now um ironically there's now you know the site is now we have a, a conservative tees valley mayor uh who is who you know regenerating the site we'll see what comes of that lots of promises of lots of jobs lots of press releases and facebook posts about lots of jobs so we'll see uh we'll see what happens but um you know the pe people here deserve every opportunity they deserve you know great jobs great skilled jobs and we have a great opportunity to have a kind of new green industrial hub here um, and I just hope the government will uh, will support that. The Dorman Long Tower I've seen all week on um, social media about the demolition of it. Opinion fairly evenly split it seems on whether it should or shouldn't have been demolished. I mean I, I understand why people 
get attached to these things. I remember when I worked at Paddy Tipping in Sherwood and there were some old headstocks of an old coal mine. And, uh, you know, half the community were like, they're an eyesore. The pit closed. Why is it still there? And other people, perhaps more closely associated with the, the, the mining industry, were like, well, I used to work there and it's a nice memory. I mean, these things are always tricky, but um, did it need to be demolished, do you think? Um, no, it didn't need to be. Um, it was, I mean, the, there was already a campaign last year to save the blast furnace for um, sort of icon for culture, for of creating visitor destination. I was less convinced about the arguments for that because of this huge size of it, the footprint of it and the cost. But the Dorman Long Tower is not big. Um, and I used to get the train, um, if you took the, the, there's a fantastic train that goes from Middlesbrough out to Saltburn on the coast, and it used to go right through the heart of the industry. And, and when, you know, the steelworks were, were working, you could see the sparks flying, you could see, you know, it was fabulous kind of real um, kind of Mad Max uh, sort of landscape. Um, and it, it was incredible. And and the Dormalong Tower was there, standing huge. And that name is so iconic. You know, it built the world. It built the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It built. It was the greatest steel and iron producer of the British Empire. And that is a source of massive, massive pride for people in this area. Um, and they, they, you know, people would say my, my, my grandparents worked there. My great grandparents. You know, everybody. You know, th this area really, Teesside only really came into creation kind of 250 years ago it was an industrial area um so so the industry is the is the beating heart of of this place and you know when the steelworks closed people it was i think the government totally underestimated how important the industry is to the sort of to the culture and the identity of people here so i had a guy who was studying at university and he said oh, i, I because I wanted to go and work. There was a good job coming up in the steelworks and my dad had worked there, my granddad had worked there, my cousins worked there. So I went, I went and did that because that's who I am. Um, I had another steelworker who, who's had a baby born quite recently after the steelworks was shut and on the you know former said occupation he said i put steelworker because that's what i'll always be that's who i am whatever job i'm doing i'll always be a steelworker and and so that that all that kind of sense of identity and you know the the, the motto of middles middlesbrough erimus you know we will be the infant hercules all of that kind of um thing about this industrial giant whose whose best days lay ahead of it is, is really really powerful and i think it would have you know, yes, it would have cost money to um, to, to preserve that building and um, to, to create something positive from it, but it was not. It's not a huge scale, and, and I think my frustration, really, the biggest frustration, was how it was handled. There was no consultation with the public. There was no attempt to reach out to some of the many brilliant organisations we have in this country, um, you know, twentieth century society and others who who do the fundraising um, around this heritage. Um, you know, there was no attempt to to list it, protect it until a member of the public did that right at the last minute that money could be raised if there'd been a proper kind of campaign and a proper strategy around it but it was just brushed aside um and i understand the, the priority for jobs i totally do but i don't believe that the small area that this covers in, in what is the biggest industrial site in europe um i don't believe that that would have got in the way of the job creation i believe you know i think something fundamentally could have been done to create a brilliant culture icon to light it up to have climbing walls to have you know stuff going on in there we have beamish which attracts a huge number of people in this region to, to see the kind of industrial and coal mining glory of of the past we should celebrate that it's part of who what this area is about and it doesn't need to be um destroyed to to make way for the future 
Landmarks are so important for the identity of an area. It feels like a, a, a peculiar decision. However, um, as well as the fifty million pounds that you that you got out of the government to help with the sort of collapse of the steelwork industry in your in your constituency, probably your your biggest success was as uh, chair of the all party group on bingo. Um, do you still? play bingo and, <laughs> and, and what did the whole party I group do? do? Oh, I, <laughs> I love bingo. And, you know, bingo is, is one of those things, that, again, you just, it's so fundamental to communities, particularly for women. Um, I love going into kind of bingo halls and bingo events in Redcliffe because they're so like welcoming for a lot of women they were kind of a safe place the networks were were always there the gossip was always brilliant and you know i used to say my advice to any aspiring candidate or mp is when you're playing if you do get a line or bingo do not say so sit quietly on it because you <laughs> the numbers of vote I, I made that mistake very early on by by calling bingo and the scowls and the chuntering and the furious looks i got from a hundred people around the hall i, I learned my lesson very quickly that uh you know, never ever to, to to do uh never to call bingo if you if you're lucky enough to get there just sit quietly with your dabber and get on with it <laughs> and do you think um number 10 will be Kia's den in the next four or five <laughs> um, years. I like it. I like what you I like what you've done there. Um, I, 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 yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be. Um, you know, and everyone's got to just focus on that because we've, we can't afford to have another term for this government. I mean, I, I, I'm just. I sit and watch from my kind of spectator seat now in absolute horror of, of what they're doing to this country. You know, having lost friends last year who died needlessly complete mishandling and mismanagement of this pandemic to see the country guy grinding to a halt with food supplies with you know uh, fuel i've just i've just been to queue up myself outside the petrol station couldn't believe it you know i just i just how they're getting away with this and that's before you start on you know all the other worrying approaches that they're taking to democracy whether that's you know the the id and, and trying to suppress voting whether you know it's the way they deal with the charity commission and others um to suppress that the whole number of kind of freedoms and democratic issues that really concern me um that you know before we even get into the ppe and the absolutely disgraceful channeling of public money to mates i mean it's I'm just kind of breathless every day with the absolute sheer horror of this government. And so Keir has to win. We have to win. And and that everyone just needs to focus, pull the fingers out, do the work, you know, and, I'm, and I, I look at, I love my colleagues dearly in Parliament, but everyone's got to step up. Everyone's got to be, you know, do, doing more, saying more, taking the fight out there um, because we've got to win the next election. It's absolutely fundamental. And have you spoken to him much since he became leader or since you lost your seat? Uh, we we have the odd text exchange on bits and pieces. <laughs> Quite often on the Arsenal, actually. <laughs> the last text uh, was was, uh, was on was on the Arsenal. But yeah, you know, I've got I've got a, a good relationship with Keir. But I try not to. I'd love to text him every day with my thoughts and views and things. But he doesn't need to hear that. He's got enough people telling him uh, what to do. So I, you know, I, I just let him get on with it. Um, but I'll be there in Brighton, and you know, looking forward to hearing his speech. And I know people have kind of 
you know, been a mixed response to this, um, you know, the, the, the Fabian pieces put out. But I think, you know, great, let's get the vision. I mean, I'm, I'm very much more of a pledge card sort of person myself. But um, actually, one of the things Tony Blair often did say was that beneath the pledge card was a huge amount of work, a huge amount of thinking, a huge amount of graft. And and then you sort of distill it. So for me, it's it's great that we're, we're really now, there's a vision here, there's the, there's the start, there's a, there's a kind of direction. So let's start to really hone this now into clear um you know campaigning messages that, that resonate with people that are practical and realistic but are also significant and radical as well um and i think i think he can do that um we just you know we, we, the, the urgency is now it's so funny the reaction to him writing that essay because on the one hand people say oh we, we haven't got any detail we don't know what it's about and then he says well here's a long explanation of what i'm about and people go it's too long you, you're like well it's not like he's taking that out at election <laughs> time. He's doing that now to set out his stall. It's perfectly legitimate. And I wish more people would do that. I'd be interested to read pamphlets on what more politicians actually thought. Exactly, exactly. It's it's quite kind of old school in a way, but I really like it. Um, and, you know, I think it's ironic that some of the people like John McDonnell complaining about, I think these are the guys who love a, love a pamphlet. You know, they love a long kind of, you know, yeah. treaties. And uh, so, so no, I've got no problem with that. But, it, but that's kind of, that's just one aspect. And that's for a certain audience. Um, and, you know, let's, let, let's also Let's focus on the video. Let's focus on the the messaging. Let's focus on the kind of clear, concise uh, pledges for people. Let's let's now build the kind of vision for Britain and a positive, hopeful vision that's that's you know going to come out of. Well, I hope people will feel the, the 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 challenges that this country faces and look to Labour to say, yep, they're the ones that I think have got the answers. <clears throat> Excuse me, and they're the ones that want to build the kind of country that I want to be in, and that I can see that that guy in number ten. And, and dealing with the rest of the world and and um, building the kind of country that I want to I want to see. And are you excited about conference? Obviously, there, there wasn't one last year. Um, Labour conferences historically can really vary between quite joyous uh, moments and and <laughs> internecine warfare. What sort of what sort of party do you expect to see when you're down in Brighton? <laughs> Well, I'm quite intrigued, and that's one of the reasons why I want to go because I, I missed a couple of years as well um, before last year. So uh, I've missed it. I love conference. I love catching up with old friends. I love the, you know, the buzz, the ideas, the conversations, the the, the karaoke. You know, I, lo I love the the sense of being amongst people who, you know, you're part of a family with. That's what it's always been. That's how it should be. Um, and I'm interested to see whether that's, you know, I, I really hope this is where the party is. I, I'll be devastated if I get a sense of you know the the sort of excuse <clears throat> me the resentment or the um nastiness that's plagued the party in the last few years I I, I just think that's got to go you know we've we've, we've got to move on we've got to focus on the public we've got to stop kind of you know the, the bitching and moaning and and we've just got to get on with doing what needs to be done so I'm, I'm hoping that we have a really positive conference and that we present a party to the public um that people say yeah i i i recognize that they they i want them to to set out a vision for britain that i can buy into that's what conference should be about you mentioned karaoke then do you have any particular songs that are your favorites that do karaoke oh god <clears throat> i'm a lover of power ballads 80s power ballads um so uh yeah always a bit of bonnie tyler on the agenda uh for <laughs> me but um but yeah, I'll, uh, I'll hopefully there'll be no video evidence 
surfacing from next week. <laughs> well, if you're going to the Labour Party conference and you see Anna Turley singing karaoke, <laughs> please tweet that video. Anna, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, there you go, Anna Turley, with so much inspiring pragmatism. I was going to say it's rare. I'm not sure it is. I think there are a lot of pragmatists in politics on all sides. I just think the way politics went, and it still is over the last few years and, and still is now, um, means that the noisier, really sometimes sillier voices get more attention than those people who are just trying to sort the problems of the world out. And Anna Turley is one of those people trying to sort problems out. Obviously faced a number of her own problems, not least that legal action against Unite, which she won. Um, so, and just that incredible revelation about these forums where members of her own party were sharing information on these forums that had been started by the far right. Oh, I, I imagine there's a film in that somewhere. Um, but anyway, what a pleasure it was to talk to Anna Turley at the start of Labour Party Conference Week. And of course, in a couple of days' time, I'm joined by Andy Burnham on Monday, the 27th of September. You can get tickets to that at mattford.com slash live and all future political party dates. I cannot tell you how excited I am for this show to be back on stage. That was how it was first conceived. It's really how it had always meant to be. I cannot wait to be back on stage doing them. So I hope to see you there. I hope you keep him well. And I hope you're enjoying um, this gradual unlocking. It does feel that incrementally um, life is becoming more normal. Uh, still very aware of all the risks there. But nevertheless, it feels like we can all do a bit more now. And that is a, a very enjoyable and pleasurable thing. Hopefully I'll see you at the Duchess Theatre soon. Take care. Ta-ra. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.